Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. Today, in honor of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, we wanted to spend some time understanding what pancreatic cancer is and the best ways to protect ourselves. It's still considered a rare cancer, but every so often we'll hear news stories pop up when a celebrity is diagnosed. Now there's evidence that rates are rising and they're rising faster, especially in younger women, particularly African-American women. So what can we do about this rising cancer risk? What are some of the myths and facts around pancreatic cancer? And how can people advocate for themselves when it comes to their health? Here to discuss this topic with us is my guest, Dr. Malini Sur. She's a board-certified surgical oncologist with expertise in the surgical management of tumors of the liver, pancreas, and gastrointestinal tract. Dr. Sur works at the Atlanta Liver and Pancreas Surgical Specialist Group at Northside Hospital Cancer Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. She values an evidence-based multidisciplinary approach to cancer care. Hi, Dr. Sir. How are you? Hi, Dr. Patek. Thank you so much for having me today. So before we explore our topic today, I'd like to hear about your health discovery. What was your aha moment around pancreatic cancer? And then what were some of the actions you took because of that discovery? So that's a great question. I always wanted to be a surgeon, but it was during my medical school rotations that I really fell in love with the Whipple procedure, which is one of the most complex operations deep in the body that as a student, you know, allows you to see a lot of very fascinating anatomy deep in the body. That was a large part of why I ultimately went into the field of surgical oncology, which is cancer surgery. Although I wanted to do these complex procedures, I also really love talking to patients, especially at a time when they are sick and when they're overwhelmed. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of helping patients understand step-by-step step the complexity of their own anatomy and their diagnosis, and for them to understand the risks and benefits of all their treatment options, especially when, you know, obviously they are very scared and very frightened about what's going on inside of them. So let's just take a step back. What is pancreatic cancer? Cancer, just generally speaking, is an abnormal tissue growth that results when cells develop a way to divide and multiply uncontrollably. The pancreas is an organ that's located deep in the upper abdomen. It's shaped like a fish, so we talk about it having a head, neck, body, and tail. The head of the pancreas is nestled inside the first portion of the small intestine, and this is where it gets a little complicated, where inside the pancreatic head, two ducts, both the duct from the pancreas and then also the bile duct, connect with the intestines to allow bile and pancreatic juice to mix with your food after you take a bite and it passes through your stomach to help break down the food into nutrients that you can absorb. The pancreas has another major function, which is to create insulin to help regulate your body's blood sugar levels. So cancer in the pancreas obviously is particularly challenging because of the important function of the pancreas and of its difficult location. It's really, really important for people to understand that part of the reason the treatment is so complex too, surgically for what you're doing is just like you mentioned, it's so nestled within these other major internal organs and the pancreas itself has so many important functions. Right. And, 
making things more complicated, the major blood vessels to and from the entire small intestine run also right underneath that area. So that can be an important consideration, especially when we're thinking about surgery. Can you explain why it is? I mean, some of the reasons that the prognosis is so unfavorable is because you don't necessarily know it's there. It stays hidden for such a long period of time. So can you talk a little bit about that and where does it generally sort of metastasize to or spread to? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the difficulty has many elements to it. Number one, you know, we don't have for the general public because the rates are still very low. There is no standard screening test for pancreatic cancer for a regular person. Certainly, it's important to know your family history because if you do have a family history and you qualify for genetic testing, if you're found to have a genetic mutation, then you might qualify for pancreatic cancer screening. But that's going to be a very small number of patients a year. The next problem is that, as we've discussed, it's very deep in the body. And so sometimes you can actually have a large tumor, especially when it's in the body and the tail, where it's not really pushing up against another structure. You can get tumors that kind of grow and don't necessarily cause people to go to the emergency room or seek emergency help. So they can sometimes have vague symptoms like abdominal discomfort, back pain, weight loss. Some of my patients didn't realize they thought they were, you know, just magically losing weight on their own and eating right. And they realize they were actually losing weight because they were sick. So tumors, especially in the body and the tail, can be difficult. For the tumors in the head of the pancreas, they can actually block the bile duct, causing patients to turn yellow or have what we call jaundice. And in some ways, we are almost thankful when that happens, because at least that is an obvious signal to everyone that something is wrong. When pancreatic cancer is advanced, you know, we can have kind of two sets of patients, one where the tumor is advanced because it's wrapped around those blood vessels. So they may not be able to have surgery, but again, they may have other treatment options. They do have other treatment options. There are also some patients that at the time of diagnosis will have already had it spread to their liver or sometimes the surface of their abdomen. When I say surface, I mean the internal surface or the lining of the abdomen. That is, I think, really important information. Thinking as a primary care doctor, if someone is coming to me with sort of vague symptoms of abdominal pain or just a fullness in their stomach, I'm probably not necessarily going to be thinking about this as the first, second, or third thing, unless it's also associated with what you're saying, the, the weight loss that's not intended, the jaundice is sort of hopefully an earlier sign so that you actually recognize, okay, I got to look in this particular area. Right. So I would say two other things. One is certainly new onset diabetes, especially in a person who was never pre-diabetic and now they have new onset diabetes. The other thing is when you're missing pancreatic enzymes, you can have what we as doctors call steatorrhea, but as patients will recognize it as kind of floating, greasy, oily stools, which can be a sign of pancreatic insufficiency. I think it's very hard. I have a very biased practice, right? Like I see pancreatic cancer every week, almost every clinic. And so for me, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, you know, this is what's been going on. This is what the explanation is for your six months of symptoms. But I am not envious of your job because you're on the infantry, you know, where you're seeing so many people have these kinds of complaints and don't have anything serious. So how does the primary care doctor 
pick up on these things. I think obviously it's a judgment call, but anybody, I think with progressive persistent symptoms, you know, in my mind, I mean, certainly for a, for pancreatic cancer, some kind of a detailed scan, like a CAT scan or an MRI is helpful. But also just as I treat some other abdominal cancers, I think endoscopy and colonoscopy, blood work, kind of going through all those steps if you have progressive symptoms. For pancreatic cancer specifically, it's going to be rarely picked up on on anything else other than imaging in terms of a workup. I should say I do have a lot of patients that in their workup had an ultrasound. I mean, for me, again, I have a biased view because I'm looking for big things, but an ultrasound will not pick up on on these things typically. So to me, someone who has mild symptoms that get better, obviously that's somebody you don't need to keep interrogating, but a patient that comes and, and for the patients who are listening, I think it's just important that you make sure that your voice is heard, right? That if your symptoms are not getting better, you've gone back to talk to your doctor and say, hey, we did initial testing, looks okay, I'm not better. Is there anything else we can do? I think that is the critical point is that we're always going to start necessarily with sort of what are the most common things, but we really, really think it's just so important for any patient that's listening that if you are recognizing that things are not getting better, because that's a piece of it too. It's not just your symptoms at any one given time, but it's just how long are they lasting? And if this is not getting better, then it is absolutely completely fine. Your doctor encourages it. Your healthcare professional encourages you to come back and say, it's not getting better. And then we just keep looking until we find what we need to find. So that's such critical information. Very important. I mean, we've all had abdominal pain. We've all had back pain. To me, it's, did it get better? And then the other thing is, is it interfering with your daily life? I think we all have mild things, but if we're, for the most part, going on with our routine, as working moms or, you know, for you and me, then oftentimes it means that it's not that bad. On the other side of it is that busy people often ignore their bodies, right? So it's important to take that time and go with that gut feeling. If something's not right, escalate. And I think the weight loss red flag too, like we often talk about like, what are the red flags? There are certain things that are sort of vague, not really specific to anything, but then there are certain things that are red flags. And that is definitely something you want to bring to your doctor's attention. And I think just the reality of healthcare these days is you may be not seeing necessarily that same person. And you may think, well, this is in my chart or in my notes. So just really make sure to highlight family history, these types of changes, weight loss, I think so critical. Another thing I've heard, sometimes people will interpret, you know, if they have an initial workup and their doctor says everything is fine. I've had patients who will then think, well, it got worse, but my doctor said everything was fine, so I didn't think anything of it, right? And I just remind them that just because your test looked fine at that point doesn't mean now, two or three months later, if you're still having those symptoms, that that's still fine. It's a tough spot to be in, both as a patient and as a primary care provider. Definitely tough, but I think the core key message is don't stop if you're still having symptoms until you feel like the full workup has been done, and then bring it up again. And again, if you need to. Yeah. Or ask to speak to a specialist, you know, depending on, you know, the comfort level of who you're seeing. If it's something that is bothering you, see if you can get a referral. What are some of the myths 
that you really want to dispel in patients? So we've talked about some of them, which is that, okay, everything's fine. Your doctor says everything's fine at one point in time. That's something that you can follow up on. You don't have to just sit back and say, okay, done, if you're not feeling better. What else are you seeing in your practice? I think some people think that they can't have cancer because it's not in their family. A lot of people think cancer is just inherited. And so that's a myth. Most cancer is not inherited, including pancreatic cancer. There are going to be a few that have a family history and have a genetic mutation of some kind, but the vast majority of our patients do not have a family history. So don't be fooled if everyone in your family lives till they're 95. That doesn't necessarily mean that you might not have a problem. Another thing, as you mentioned earlier, is that we are seeing, unfortunately, younger people. So it's now not uncommon anymore to see people in their 40s with pancreatic cancer, which was really actually unheard of when I was a medical student. So just in the last 15, 20 years, we have seen this change. And it may be for many reasons. Part of it might just be that more people are getting scanned and more people are getting diagnosed. It may not necessarily reflect that it's happening earlier, but we're definitely feeling it and seeing it in our offices. Again, the overall risk to an average person is still extraordinarily low. So I do not want our listeners being overwhelmed with panic or anxiety because chances are you don't have it. But I do want people to understand that, again, they should not blow off symptoms because they're 42 and working and otherwise healthy and don't have a family history because that doesn't mean that you can't have a serious problem. And then I think the last point is in some ways more hopeful, which is that, as you were saying, it was really thought of when we were training, oh my God, pancreatic cancer, you know, that's the end and it has a terrible prognosis. And of course, it remains a serious disease, but we have made a lot of progress over the last 10 years. And so that people are living longer now than they were before. There are a lot of different treatment options, a combination of surgery, chemotherapy, and or radiation can help most people to live longer. And so I think, God forbid, any of our listeners or their loved ones are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I think it's important to obviously take a breath and put your support team together and then put your medical team together. You really want to be treated at a high volume center, a a center where all the specialists see pancreatic cancer very commonly. And then, you know, you want to see what the extent of the disease is and what your treatment options are. But I think it's important to kind of stay in the moment and focus on what do I do today? What do I do tomorrow? And the tasks at hand and keeping up with a positive outlook. So you were mentioning the sort of treatment options. So first of all, how do you determine whether or not surgery is an option? And if it is, then what does that surgery kind of look like? So our process is, as you can imagine, a comprehensive process. Oftentimes I tell people we're not making necessarily decisions on the same visit because we often need to get some more data. Everybody needs full blood work, full scans to look at the extent of their disease. We want to make sure it hasn't spread outside the pancreas to have surgery. And we also want to make sure that the blood vessels are not involved, or if they are involved, they're involved in a way that surgery is still possible. We also want to look at the status of the patient, right? So an 85-year-old with a bunch of medical problems who's not able to get up and get around and is in bed most of the day is going to be treated differently from a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old, even if they have the same scans and the same data. So we also look at how does the patient look and what's their nutritional status. And taking that all into account, we would determine whether surgery looks like it is a possibility or could be a possibility. More and more, 
many patients who can't have surgery are actually still having some chemotherapy first because we found over time that the chemotherapy can really help with helping people live longer and that more people are able to get chemotherapy or more of their chemotherapy if they do it before than after this big surgery. And the surgery is a complex one where we're taking out the head of the pancreas, the first portion of the intestine, the last portion of the stomach, the end of the bile duct, all the lymph nodes, taking that out and then reconnecting the intestine, sewing the intestine to the pancreas, the bile duct, and to the remainder of the stomach. And then during the recovery, the important thing is to watch for any signs of infection or bleeding, making sure all those connections are doing well, then slowly transitioning the patient to eating more, walking around, getting off of narcotic pain medicine, and hopefully going home. And then during the recovery period, we'll go over, you know, what did the pathology show, which means the part that was taken out, reviewing kind of how extensive was it really, because our scans are really just an estimate of what's going on, but the pathology is kind of the truth because it's looking at the real tumor and the organs under the microscope. And then based on that, we'll have a conversation about what other therapies might be needed. And oftentimes patients who can have surgery can still have chemotherapy and radiation or just chemotherapy if they're not a candidate for local therapy. So when you kind of find something that's suspicious for pancreatic cancer on your scans, your next step is to biopsy And then you're saying with the surgical procedure, what you're looking for with the pathology is just like, are you very confident in the spread or the exact type? Right. That's right. So I didn't mention most people will have had a biopsy oftentimes before they're even seeing me. But typically that biopsy is done endoscopically through an advanced endoscopy procedure. They can also have it image guided by a radiologist. But yes, the surgical pathology is reviewing where the cut ends clean or the margins clean and free of tumor. And also, did the tumor go to the lymph nodes? So that can help to understand what other treatments might be needed. I am just so thankful that people like you are are doing this type of work. It is clearly a very complex and complicated process if you are or a loved one is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So just in terms of action items, what is actionable in our lives to protect ourselves. You mentioned it's not always genetic and not commonly genetic. So what are some of the things we can do? Right. I think that's key that, you know, we have things we can work on. And of course, with any individual patient, I always say you didn't cause this, right? So it's not that anything we do necessarily creates cancer. We know that it's probably caused by many things coming together, environment and genes interacting in some way to create this bad process. But I think the first thing is always talk to my patients about a healthy lifestyle. And to me, you know, if I had to guess, I can't prove it, obviously. It would take a lot to prove it. But I think if you look at our diets over the last 20 to 30 years as a culture, we're eating as a group a lot more processed foods and packaged foods than we ever did, than our parents did or our grandparents did. So I think limiting those outside I call them outside foods or processed, fried or sugary foods. I think about the pepperoni and sausages, hot dogs, french fries, hamburgers, packaged snacks like chips and sodas and my personal vice, which is baked goods. I think limiting those as much as possible and trying to focus, of course, on fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, whole grains. And then on the other side of it is, of course, exercise, 30 minutes at least of, you know, moderate activity exercise three to five times a week. 
I would say be up to date with your screening tests. Although there are none for pancreatic cancer for most people, I think just being connected to your doctor helps so that going in for your mammogram and going in for your colonoscopy, which is now starting at age 45, I think helps to just keep you connected. Know your family history well. If you've got mysterious illnesses that, you know, your aunt or your parents had really as an adult, this is a time to nail down, hey, what exactly happened? You know, what do we know? And anybody, if you have anyone in your family that had cancer, especially before 50, you know, somebody who died suddenly or died young of an advanced tumor, you may qualify yourself for genetic testing or you may want to get it out of pocket if insurance doesn't pay for it. It's a couple of hundred bucks. It's not outrageous. It is an expense, but it's something you could talk to a genetic counselor about investigating. The last point, I think, is what we've already said, which is know your body, pay attention to these signs. And if you're having concerning symptoms, make sure to not just see your doctor, but escalate and stand up for yourself. If you feel like you're having symptoms and they're not being addressed, see if there's any other thing that you can do or other tests that you can undergo. I just want to thank you so much for being with us today and really helping us understand the process underlying pancreatic cancer, where the pancreas is, why it's an unfavorable prognosis in the past, but the things that we can do to protect ourselves, it's been such an important conversation. So I really want to thank you for that. Oh, it's a total privilege to be able to join WebMD on this podcast series and hopefully increase awareness about this rare and complex disease that we do see. And we need to make sure that everyone's eyes are open and ears are listening for any signs or clues that this might be happening either to themselves or to their loved ones. Thank you so much for having me. We've talked with Dr. Malini Sur about pancreatic cancer. I think the key takeaways for me are number one, listen to your body. I think that's one of the keys that we have been trying to encourage throughout this series is listen to your body. Sometimes things are vague. Sometimes things aren't very specific, but you want to see how is this progressing over time? And then you want to make sure that you're advocating for yourself with your health professional. And then I think the other piece that I'm going to take away is we don't have control over everything. There are certain things that we do have control over. So as much as we can try to eat real foods, as Dr. Sore pointed out, the better, just not even just for pancreatic cancer, but for our health in general. The more we can move our bodies and exercise and be physically active, all of that is just going to keep us generally healthier. Thank you again, Dr. So Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. To find out more information about Dr. Sewer, visit atlantaliverandpancreas.com, and we'll have that link in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattuk for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. <laughs>